Well, if you have your Bible, we will be in the book of Matthew. As we are in a series in the book of Matthew, we'll be going all the way through Easter of 25, 2025, through this book. And so we find ourselves in the most famous sermon, probably in the Bible, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And so we begin this, Matthew chapter 5, and as our kids go out to age-appropriate teaching, we just are thankful for those little kids' lives and for those workers who are pouring into our next generation. I want to begin reading in Matthew 5, verses 1 to 3, and then we will dive in as we are entering into uh, this sermon and this specific sermon series, and this sermon is entitled, Your Kingdom Come. It is our prayer. So let's read. I will read from God's Word, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, but we will go all the way through verse 16 today. Word of God says this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he, that is Jesus, sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come. And we are needy. We hold our hearts open and we ask that in this moment you would pour out your Holy Spirit anointing upon our hearts. That means you would fill us up, you would give us attention where we're tempted to distraction. You would give us courage when we might have had the volume up on discouragement. Father, we pray that you would give us hope where we have felt sadness. And Father, I pray that where fear exists, that you would cause trust to abound. Please take us in this moment so that we might be able to pray. Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done, right now in this moment, on this earth, as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Unexpected. Every year there are so many unexpected moments, moments of joy. Moments of sadness, moments that are honestly just kind of weird, but unexpected nonetheless. For example, tonight is the Super Bowl. Many of you might have expected that the Chiefs would be there. You might not have expected the 49ers. It doesn't really matter because what sadly or weirdly, I think, has gotten the greatest highlights is Taylor Swift, right? And I was at the dinner table and some... Uh, my daughter's friends were over at the table, and in a moment, we could just recite that Taylor Swift was in Tokyo, and now she was, it was a window, will she really make it to the Super Bowl or not? This was like the crisis, not of their lives, but of our culture. And it was like, okay, will she make it or not? Oh, and did you know that it is the 13th game that she's watched of Travis Kelsey, which is her favorite number? And like, I don't care. But... You know, somebody does, and it's a big deal. And that was fairly unexpected to me when I entered into the NFL season. There's been a lot of unexpected. COVID was pretty unexpected. I think we could use that word as a pretty sure bet for every one of us in 2020. Financial turns were unexpected, both globally, nationally, and our own lives, unexpected. But if you just think about your own family or about our church, you think, man, there's been some unexpected turns this year. You think about your kids, or you think about your roommates, or you think about what happens in sickness or injury, and you're just like, yeah, I totally did not see that coming. Some event, some encouragement, some loss, you just didn't see it. You could even think about this morning. Some of you, the traffic was unexpected. 
And so you might have gotten frustrated. That's usually what road rage is. You expected everyone to bow to your plans, and when they didn't, then you get frustrated. It's the unexpected, right? Or when your spouse asks you to do something that you were not expecting, and you can get a little frustrated. Don't you know I've got stuff going on? And what happens when the unexpected hits? It's kind of a pressure moment. How will we respond? When the kids act a certain way and you weren't expecting it, how will we respond? When the boss asks you to do something that was not on the agenda, how will you respond? And what happens sometimes is we get anxious and we get afraid. Why do we do that? Because we're feeling overwhelmed. We're feeling out of control. The expected makes us think we are in control. The unexpected reminds us we are not. Have you ever gone to the doctor? Sat there on the edge of the table, your legs dangling, and for a physical, they will take out some instrument and they'll knock the front of your knee, and then you're supposed to be able to go, boo, you know, your knee will move. It's called a reflex. God gives us the unexpected to try to help our reflexes be, I trust you. I trust you. He wants the reflex of our hearts in the middle of the micro unexpected or the macro unexpected to be, I trust you. And Jesus comes onto the scene in this moment and he says, you can trust me. I'm coming with tender care and kingly rule and you can trust that I'm in control. I have your best interest at heart. I am good. I'm always loving. But what I'm about to do, he says to the crowd, is, might be unexpected. Now, it shouldn't be unexpected, but it is unexpected because it's so different than how the world views everything. Jesus says, I am bringing a kingdom that lays out my kingdom values. And he promises that although it is unexpected as we view it through the lenses of the world, he says his way is abundant life. And it's not, only ups- it's not upside down, it's actually right side up. So as we dive into this sermon today, look at the Sermon on the Mount, we will focus on Jesus bringing his unexpected kingdom. And the prayer is that we would trust him so much that we would say, not my kingdom come, not the way I thought everything should go come, but there would be a release, and there would be a trust, and there would even be a hope. And so that we would be able to say, your kingdom come. We want what you want because we trust your plans. So four things that we look at today. One is, what does it mean when Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of heaven? Number two, why a kingdom? Number three, we begin to dive into his unexpected upside down kingdom through what is known as the Beatitudes. And then we think about imaging forth his kingdom. Now, if you're like me, the word kingdom feels pretty abstract, unrelatable, difficult to apply. Just sit with it for a little bit. We'll get there, and hopefully it'll make a lot more, not only sense, but bring hope, comfort, and trust. Matthew chapter 5, we read these words. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and Jesus opens his mouth, and he teaches them, and he says, blessed. This is a picture of the good life, what it means to, to live in the abundance of God's loving presence, what it means to experience his joy and peace, blessing of God upon your heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit for Let's read these words together. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who is the theirs? It's those who are sitting out in front of him. Jewish audience, mostly poor, hurting individuals. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the reader is meant to read this and they're meant to take in all these words and you and I are meant to say, so mine, ours is the kingdom of heaven. 
And so, what does it mean for us to say to one another, trust these words, trust the Savior, yours is the kingdom of heaven. The on-ramp for this moment is where we have read multiple times already in this book, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist starts preaching, and you know what he preaches? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus goes on, chapter 4, verse 17, as we heard last week, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does at hand mean? It's near, it's upon us, it has arrived. What has arrived? Kingdom. <laughs> Still, I read it many times, and I have to totally do so much mental work because it's like I know what a home is like I know what a nation is I know what a city is I know what a, like a it just it's really hard to get my mind to grasp and embrace kingdom but when you think of kingdom you need to think of two words it's an action and a person you might say no it's a noun that would only be from you grammar heads out there for most of us did not say that Kingdom, it's an action and a person. Action. The kingdom of heaven is actually communicating a verbal idea. That is the rule and reign or control or authority of Jesus Christ. His control over all things. You just hear this phrase, I've got you. That's what this is. I've got you. But I feel like I'm falling. He says, I've got you. I feel confused. He says, I've got you. This is unexpected. He says, I've got you. It is his rule. He holds the universe together by the word of his power. I've got you. His kingdom coming is the reality that he is ruling and reigning over your life, but over something much bigger, the church, yes, over, some, over the entire universe. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then it's not simply an idea. It's not simply saying, I'm going to institute a government that will kind of rule this region or this. He's saying, I am the ruler. When Jesus says, my kingdom is at hand, he is saying, I'm the king. When we look at the Lord's prayer later on and it says, our father who is in heaven, holy be your name, your kingdom come. That line is, God, I want your rule in my life and it means you're the king. And I need your presence. His kingdom to come. For Jesus to say, look at me, the kingdom of heaven is yours. If you will live this way, if you will think this way, he is saying, I am the king. You don't get a kingdom without a king and I am gracious and merciful. So the first pause is this. It's just time to stop and say, I trust you. Think about the space, the person, the situation, the job, the relationship, where it might be the hardest to say, I trust you. And Jesus says, the happiest space, the most abundant life, is when you are poor in spirit, Acknowledging you should not and cannot rule your own life. And Jesus says, it's for those that they understand and rest. That my kingdom is at hand. I'm here. The call is, do you trust him? Do you want him to be your authority? And do you love the fact that he is in control of your life? His word begins to be precious his church begins to be this special heaven and earth people, even though we are very messy. It's where he promises to be in and among us. And so deep down, dear friends, 
where you know you're out of control, where the pains feel acute, he is wanting us day by day to stop and to say, we're not God, you are. I trust you. Now, why does Jesus talk this way? Is he just making up this kind of language of kingdom? Why is this so important to Matthew? We've got to lay this out on the front end. Because literally the word kingdom appears almost 60 times in this book alone. So you're not going to get away from this conversation. It is so important to Jesus and to Matthew as he is laying out Jesus' life. He was like, this is revolutionary for you and for your life. We have got to get this. The king is at hand and he is worthy to be trusted. He loves us and our lives must be on his kingdom agenda so that we can say, your kingdom come. So why? Why does Jesus talk this way? Because he's read his Bible. The law, the prophets, the writings. Jesus says as he's walking on the road to Emmaus, that whole book is about me, the king. Why a kingdom? Because what we call the Old Testament tells us so. Now the Old Testament has built up with its readers this sense that they were to expect a king to come onto the scene and to bring a kingdom that had a bunch of characteristics. So, if an elephant walks in here, you're going to know it's an elephant. Why? It's big O. It's gray. It's got a trunk. And it makes an elephant noise, right? There are characteristics of an elephant, and you're like, that's an elephant. He's saying, as you've been reading your Bible in the Old Testament, the kingdom has been talked about so much that it's just this massive list of kingdom characteristics so that when it shows up on the scene, you're going to know the kingdom is here. One small problem. We have hard hearts. And we think the kingdom should come in the way that we think it should come. Do you know when the first concept of kingly rule begins and appears? Genesis 1. And just listen to the language. And the Lord blessed them. Not because of anything they did, just because he's a blessing God. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over it. It's ruling language from the very jump. That although God is king over all things, he has created us to extend his kingly image to a lost and dying world that needs to know there's a good king they can trust so they don't live in fear and anxiety and insecurity. We are a part of his kingly rule. We're meant to bring a kingdom of peace and of joy onto this planet in every fabric of society. The church is this invading moment, this in, these invading images that just put forth a different picture than the kingdom of the world. But this plan, because of our hard hearts, went radically wrong. God's plan wasn't bad, we just hijacked it. And our forefathers, Adam and Eve, they said, God, you cannot be trusted to do us good. I'm going to call your plan into question because you're making me wait for something. Namely, knowing good and evil. The wisdom that was meant to come over time, walking with the Lord, they say, I'm just going to get it when I want it, as I want it. And they did what was wise in their own eyes and unraveled all of humanity and creation. So that the next thing we see is Cain and Abel. You see death. The next thing you see is you see destruction. And you see the flood with Noah. And the next thing you see is rather than allowing God to be their protection, you see the city of Babylon and they're making a tower for their own name. But we're created to live in the security of living for the name of their king. It's all there. And it's been there. All throughout the scriptures, God's kingly rule. And then where Babylon went sideways, Pharaoh was shown as the perfect picture of a human kingdom that leads to oppression and slavery of the people of Israel. And do you know the first time that the word king is used in the Old Testament? Exodus 15. The song of Moses. 
after the people have been delivered out of this earthly kingdom through the Red Sea, they sing a song. Our God is king. And he brings salvation. It's the first time salvation is used in the scriptures. Is that one Exodus 15 moment. Our king brings salvation. When he comes on the scene, he's supposed to bring hope. And that's what's happening right here in Matthew chapter 5. King's on the scene. But there's something pretty remarkable. We keep hitting the abort button on following his path. We keep embracing grumbling and complaining and trusting ourselves and doing what is wise in our own eyes. But over and over throughout the scriptures, the prophets say, our God still rules and reigns even though no one might be acknowledging it. He is still king. And there will come a day when he will bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. A king will come to Jerusalem, the prophets say. But it's actually pretty shocking because this is what they weren't expecting, right? When your brain starts going like the world goes, you start thinking like the world. And the things of God become a lot more foreign to you. You've all experienced it. I've had times in my spiritual walk where I have not been as close to the Lord and I have gotten kind of cold, we might use the language, or dry, we might use the language. And then we're a lot more tempted to call into question God and His ways and His Word doesn't feel very warm and lively. We've, we've had those moments. Some of you might have it right now. The calling of this moment right now is that Jesus says, I've come and I love you. I can be trusted and I'm going to give you my word so that you might get your heart and your mind to see my ways my ways as good my authority as kind and gracious and loving and it can be trusted and so it was unexpected when after Israel was exiled some of them still in Babylon. Some of them come back to Jerusalem. Their leaders were killed. The city in shambles. And it's like Tim Mackey calls it. It's like a little movie scene in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 has this little movie scene where there's a guy. And he's a watchman. And he's sitting waiting to see what the news will be in the midst of devastation. Are we going to lose the battle or is there hope to be had? And the picture is just this watchman in the dark of night trying to figure out what will the verdict be? And this is where we begin to read these words. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. One starts running and he sees a messenger running towards him with good news. Note to self, every time good news is used in the Old Testament, it is attached to kingly royal terms. It's the gospel, good news. And he says, he's bringing good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God what? Reigns. He's king. Even though everything feels devastatingly difficult and hope feels lost, the good news is our God is still on his throne. And there will come a day that a king is going to come on the scene and Many of us who have been in the church know what follows Isaiah 52. It is the end of Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53, which was so shocking that the one who is going to come and bring his kingdom will bring it through death. Which is why when you fast forward to the end of Matthew, the first time Messiah is used to describe Jesus is at the end at his death scene. He's the coming Messiah, the coming King. But it's not sitting on a throne. He is placed with a crown of thorns. He is given a robe of a king. And he is mocked and ridiculed. And the very moment that we said, when the kingdom comes, there will be only peace. Jesus says, I come in such shocking love. 
that I will take all of your sin upon me and I will die a death I did not deserve because I love you. And through this corridor of death will be actually the very moment that shows that I'm king. That I rule. And I don't just rule the good moments. I rule every ounce of suffering in your life. And I rule over sin. And I rule over Satan. And I rule over death itself. Because three days later, our king not only died, but rose from the grave. And he says, I've got you. I'm king. I've got you. You can trust me. And you should. Stop trying to control your life. And surrender all that you are to me. Remember I asked you, is there a person or a relationship or a situation that you have not surrendered to the Lord and said, I trust you? I further the question, is there something in your own heart, a desire, a love, a priority that deep down you know you're keeping that one to yourself? And you're not saying, if God, you didn't spare your only son, but you gave him over for us all, you will graciously give us everything we need. So I give you even that. I give you even that. I give you my finances. I give you my marriage. I give you my singleness. I give you my children. I give you my very life because you're king. You're king and you're in control. Dear friends, when he brings his kingdom, it turns everything upside down. It's very unexpected. It's an unexpected kingdom. And so that's why we read right now in these words, it says in chapter 5, verse 1 of Matthew, it says, seeing the crowds. Do you know who the crowds are? It says, the crowds are those who were filled with every disease and affliction. Some were oppressed by demons. Some were lame and were hurting. This is a crowd of poverty. And this is who Jesus chose to give his most famous sermon to that a new kingdom is on the scene the unwanted maybe the excluded those who feel rejected that's who get this message and then he begins in the sea of all of this physical destitution he begins to flip it on its head through spiritual implications and he says this is my kingdom Friends, I want you to hear this. His kingdom is unexpected. And it's upside down. It's his kingdom where weakness is actually strength. It's his kingdom where greatness is not being able to recline because you've got all your financial needs met. Greatness is being like a child. And trusting him. Greatness is... Childlike is the goal, not bigger, faster, stronger, more famous. His kingdom is just different, and it's where joy is found. That's why it's so important when you read that very first promise, blessed are the poor in spirit for it, yours, theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom of joy and of peace. It's his kingdom where we go after lost people like we would a coin or other possessions, like people are more important than things. That's an upside-down kingdom in our world. It's just different. It's where ordinary is not a disease to be avoided, but a gift to be delighted in. When bigger is not the craving, faithfulness is. When weakness is a strength and not an insult, 
where humble contrition is a virtue and not a vice, where the goals of being with Him and abiding in His love and living for His glory are of supreme importance, not placing ourselves at the center. It's okay to be forgotten because we know we're remembered in Christ, where His glory is our impulse and not our own. It is an upside-down kingdom. It's unexpected. And so now as we look at these sweet words from Jesus, we hear this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who know they are spiritually bankrupt apart from Jesus can't pay the debt. Then you're ready to say Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Are you poor in spirit? And remember, he's looking at a bunch of people who know what poverty is. They're living it. And he's like, you know how you feel, unable to provide. Are you there in your heart such that you trust me to provide? To provide the promise of, you get the kingdom. They would have known what that meant. Because the kingdom has characteristics. Now, I don't know, you drive around, I drive around, and there are certain times when you see all of a sudden a building start to be built. And you start to get curious, right? What's coming in? You're wondering, is it a restaurant? Is it a shop? Like, what's coming in? Southeast Raleigh, we don't have a lot of amazing things in Southeast Raleigh. We kind of got to go to Garner in order to get some, you know, what feels like normal restaurants or whatnot, things that are not kind of distant chains and so you look at a building being built and it's like what is that what's it gonna be and so you just sit there and you know before a building gets built there's a lot of things that have happened behind the scenes right they've had to deal with permitting and they've had to deal with zoning and they've had to deal with community input and they've had to make plans and all of this in order to even start breaking ground but now the building's going up and you're like what's it gonna be and you're just not sure and then all of a sudden you see a food truck out front not like the mobile food truck, but a truck delivering food to the place. And you see tables and chairs start to go up and you're like, huh, I think I might know what this is. It's a restaurant. What kind of restaurant's it going to be? And you see kitchen equipment coming in and now you're pretty excited. You know what this is like. And then it's like, okay, what do we do? And then you see a help wanted sign come up. Okay, it looks like it's coming soon. And then they'll put arriving in this month and all of this stuff. And you're like, you've got your grid. It's like, I know what a restaurant is. And then finally, they put the sign up. It is blank. Fill in your favorite restaurant so that you can stay with the story. It's that restaurant. And you're like, yes, it's here. It's coming. This is exactly what all the hearers would have understood. They know that when the kingdom comes, the king's going to show up. They know that when he shows up, he's going to be bringing peace and joy and blessedness. Wrongs will be righted. The vulnerable will be addressed and cared for. Power will not be ruling in crazy ways. It will be held accountable. There's all this stuff. The glory of God will begin to spread and cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Characteristic after characteristic after characteristic. And you know that the kingdom is here. But it felt unexpected. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who feel spiritually bankrupt, you would have expected, blessed are those who are confident. Blessed are those who feel this sense of self-sustainability. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, no. And so he keeps going. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning assumes difficulty, affliction, Many tribulations, not because you look for it, but because it comes to you. Mourning is tears, right? Tears. Now it stands in contrast to the world's kingdom. That is, let's make sure our Instagram moments are glorious moments. Let's make sure that the face we put forward is that we have experienced 
every epic event that could ever be experienced in every location all over the planet and let's show that we are the happiest people in the world and let's make sure that we show no problems, no difficulties, like this is what we put forward. The world says that's what real blessedness is. And Jesus is like, blessed are those who mourn? He's not saying go look for mourning. He's saying that it's those who have their tears and lean into me with those tears. It is there under his kingly tender care where they will be comforted. And every one of these promises are a breaking in of the now and yet a not yet when everything will be full. Because he'll begin to expound these stories. This is, the Sermon on the Mount is one of five major discourses in the book of Matthew. He'll begin to expound this so that the listener is not just looking to the here and now, but they're looking for that final kingdom moment when there will be no more tears and no more sorrow. But the tearful out in that crowd, it was meant to ignite hope that under this king, I can be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. What does the kingdom of this world say? It says, look out for number one. Look out for yourself. Like, it is a foregone conclusion that if you have to pick between somebody else and yourself, the best good is to pick for yourself. It's just reasonable. It's reasonable under the world's way of thinking. But Jesus says, my church is characterized by my same mind that we do everything in humility. Considering others better than ourselves. Jesus lays out a contrasting kingdom. Being at the top of the societal ladder is not the goal. Being an instrument of love is. Blessed are the meek. What is this word meek? Well, it's the same word that's used for Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 when it says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, for I am meek and lowly. You might have heard gentle and lowly. Same word. Jesus says that's how I am. Approachable. Shocking kindness. You're not an inconvenience. I want you. Blessed are those kind of people. For they're going to inherit the earth. The promise in the Old Testament is that if you inherited the promised land, you had everything you needed. When they entered the promised land, the manna shut off. Because they had all that they needed in the land. And this is a picture that you will inherit the earth. You will inherit everything that you need. Choose the path of gentleness, of meekness. The words also used of Jesus when he rides on the donkey into Jerusalem. It says that he was humble, that's the word, on a donkey. And it's only used one other time in the New Testament. You know what it is? It's of wives... To have a gentle and quiet spirit. Jesus says, you know what, church? You want to know where to see a unique expression of my gentleness? Look at women. Look at them. Because that's what I have given them that is precious and unique. A gentle and quiet spirit. We all know it's hard to fight for those things. But that's when it's used. And he says, happy, blessed are the meek, the humble, shockingly kind, considering others better than self, meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Righteousness. It's not just doing right things. It is. But when you think of the word righteousness, you should think right relationship. 
Because what you're hungering for is not just that things go right, but that when things go right, your relationship with God is most intimate. So when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're actually, once again, you're hungering for a person as well as all the right stuff that comes out of a right relationship with that person. Hungering and thirsting for God's ways to roll through your life, in your life, is that your hunger? I know, like, right now, we get really close every Sunday to lunchtime, right? You get that. Just me saying that makes you just a little twitchy. It's like, I am hungry, but if you don't shut up soon, I'm going to get hangry, you know? It's like, I'm hungry. He's like, blessed are those who work on their hunger button. By sitting under my word, gazing at Jesus as king, and saying, I want you to rule my life. I want your ways to have control of me. And so he does. He gives us physical hunger so that this makes sense. It's okay to be hungry right now. I can even say my stomach has growled some. It's like, it's okay because that's meant to be translated into a God who provides and I want to hunger more for your ways than I do for anything else. And the greatest news in all the world is that that hunger will be satisfied in the king. Day by day, you will be satisfied when your hunger is there. Trust him. The way I think about hungering for righteousness is it's not like an Amazon package. He's not like saying he's going to bring a package of righteousness that you get. He's like a stay-at-home nurse. It's like he's coming into the house and he doesn't just supply a product. He comes in and says, I am going to supply all of your needs. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be attentive to you. I'm going to pay attention to you. I know what all your needs are. When you cannot help yourself, I'm there. Do you hunger for that? You'll be satisfied in me. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Once again, it's so helpful to contrast kingdoms. The world says revenge. Jesus says mercy. The world says get back. Jesus says forgiveness. The air we breathe is that we are needy. And Jesus says... You have received mercy, therefore be merciful and you'll receive more mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. His kingdom is one, is where selfishness is drained, where treating people as a means to your end is not in your heart anymore. Blessed are the pure in heart. Because he does something in your heart where you can actually see him. And you might feel like, I've been a follower of Jesus for a little bit. I really don't feel very pure in heart. What's beautiful about this is the emphasis is more on the king and what he brings than on how you fail to bring to the table. The point is, he makes your heart pure. Strive for purity. Trust him to deliver on the promises. You have a relationship with God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In Jesus' kingdom, we don't run away from conflict. We want to be used by God to step in when things get weird and wonky between people and to say, I care about you. And I want to make sure there's no tension here. And if there is, I want to say sorry where I can. And I want you to know you're more important than me being right or me getting my way. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you live for God's ways, the world will not like it. Jesus said in the book of John, they hated me, they will hate you. This is just how it works. But you will find that living for me, for my sake, my kingdom, is the place of blessing. In verse 11, 
Blessed are you when others revile you or persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Anybody who stood up to righteousness over all of history has experienced some type of attack and difficulty. And he says, just rejoice that what's happening in your life is not new to you. And all those wrongs will be made right at the end. There's a reward we live for. And it's more than just what we can touch and feel. It's a heavenly reward. So. You could literally spend a sermon on each one of these. And draw out all the applications. The reason I've gone through them so fast. Is because. (laughs) This is one sermon. From chapter 5. To chapter 7. And he just preaches it on a mountain, which is meant to be a reminder to the reader that the presence of God has come. And so although it is meant to be taken in bite-sized pieces, I could even see it as I'm going through them. The, the firing synapses began to get a little glitchy because it was like it felt like so much. Like I processed the first one and then I couldn't process the third one and I could process the fourth. Like I get that. That's how I received it when I was prepping this. But here's the point. His kingdom is otherworldly. And so we're going to spend a lot of time thinking on these verses and trying to ask God to work these into our life. But Jesus is saying, this kingdom of mine is unexpected. It is upside down compared to everything else. And that's really the macro picture I pray that you take away. That there is a kingdom of the world and there is a kingdom of heaven. And they are stark opposites. And don't get lured into thinking in the ways of the world. Don't get comfortable in the ways of the world. Get really comfortable in the arms of Jesus and just know that His way of thinking is upside down and many times unexpected compared to the way the world talks and thinks and looks. Be discipled by Jesus, not by the world. That's the point. So that you will be His salt and light and city. Three Old Testament images that are telling you and me that we are His kingly image out into the world. Which is why we read, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand so it gives light to all the house. What's he doing here? Three Old Testament images. Salt, the enduring nature of God's love for his people. It preserves them. We are to receive his steadfast love and to image it forth so that it preserves others. Salt. We are light. Light all throughout the Old Testament is his presence. May the light of your face shine upon us. And we have tasted his presence and we are meant to be his little lights all throughout this world to say that our God loves you and then we are to be the city on a hill he literally compares us we are the new jerusalem the city on a hill he's talking about is jerusalem a light shining in the distance so that all those who are walking in darkness might actually look at our lives and want the god that we follow church jesus is saying his kingdom is here Jesus is the king. He gives us a new Torah. He's the new Moses. A new way of living. A new kingdom. Called these Beatitudes. And he says, I will work this in you. Strive with all your might to live this way. You will get the blessed promises that I'm promising you. Now go image me forth so that the nations might be glad and rejoice in me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we say in this moment, your kingdom come. We want peace where there's not peace. We want purity of heart where we are impure. 
We want to have such a perspective on the unexpected that when it comes, our knee-jerk reaction is, I trust you. We want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to be merciful rather than bitter and revengeful. We want to be meek and gentle and kind. We want to take our tears to you and we want to be poor in spirit because we trust right now. We trust, and I pray, Father, that you would do it in our hearts. We trust these promises. It's for them where we get the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven, where tears will be comforted, where we will inherit everything that we need and we will be satisfied. We will receive your mercy. We will see you face to face. We will be called the sons of God. And we will be with you forever where our great reward is in heaven. Father, please take your word, not only for us as individuals, but take your word in every single member of Treasuring Christ Church and help them to see their lives as a part of a family, a story that you are writing where even in unexpected moments, we can say we trust you. And we want to be on your mission of imaging you forth to a lost and dying world. Meet us personally, meet us corporately, and meet those in this space right now who have never known Jesus. Turn their world upside down and cause them to trust you with their very lives. We're going to take about just about a minute or so just to set our hearts still and to ask God to work in our own hearts. His Holy Spirit has been at work and he's brought something to mind. What's one thing that he wants you to take away from this moment today? One thing. Maybe it's the space you need to give to him that you've been withholding. Maybe it's the thing that you've held over where you've said this is impossible. You can trust him. Maybe it's just you have the volume up on your failure rather than his love for you. Ask him to show you through this passage in this moment how much he loves you. Whatever it is, spend this moment right now giving your heart to him and preparing your heart to celebrate his death and resurrection in the Lord's Supper. Let's spend a moment of silence with him.